Hey guys, if you're like me, you despise waiting in line at the big box source only to deal with a minimum wage pimple popper that doesn't know his bore from his buttstock. Or spend hours of your precious time online looking up something that may or may not exist or is unavailable. Well, I have your solution. It's Rooftop Arms. Rooftop Arms is a new online-style, custom-built firearms and retail shop. If you can build your own weapon, would you? I would, and I would call these guys because they know what they're doing. The cool thing about this company is you can get a hold of them online. They know exactly what you want. You can custom build anything you want. There's no lines, no pimple poppers, and no COVID masks. When you have your firearm built by Rooftop Arms, it is a precision firearm with customized parts and accessories made for your gun for your style of shooting. Not to mention, it will come with an optic or sight, depending on your preference, already mounted, professionally bore sighted, and ready when you pick it up. You know what that means? That means you're ready to punch 10 rings. That means you don't have to screw around with more time online looking for an optic, looking for a sight, waiting for it to be delivered by Amazon. Nope, you're ready to go to the range. Also, it means not sitting there for the first 20 minutes, maybe the first day, wasting ammo trying to get your gun on target. It's ready to go. Did I mention it comes with its own carrying case and cleaning kit? These things are awesome. They're built, ready to shoot. There's no questions asked. Also, these guys, they do other things like sell ammo or sell optics if you want a different optic. They do all kinds of cool stuff. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and check these guys out. You know what? Better off, get off your Twitter, Snap, Face, Insta thing and flick your thumb the other way. Go to Google, go to search, type in www.rooftoparms.com. All lowercase, all one word. Again, www.rooftoparms.com. And get off the Twitter face thing. You don't need it. It's evil. Welcome to the Mediocre Outdoors Podcast, where we talk about everything outdoors. After living with teenagers, I decided that I have a lot of knowledge left and nobody really to give it to. So, I created this podcast so that I can give my information and my knowledge to you guys and pass it forward. On Mediocre Outdoors, I'm with Oak Rankin, and he is with the... Um, Glacier Peak Institute, and I'm going to let him inter- or say hi and introduce himself and explain exactly where he works and what he does. Uh, Oak, go ahead. All right. Well, good day, y'all. Uh, Oak Rankin, again, Executive Director of Glacier Peak Institute. Uh, we're based in Darrington, Washington, up in the North Cascades, uh, serving youth up here in Glacier Peak Institute, uh, Glacier Peak Region. Um, we were founded after the 2014 slide, uh, Oso slide, and in that year, a slide came down and killed 43 members of our community here. Um, but prior to that, the poverty of the region had risen by 50%. Special education rates in our schools had tripled. Our schools themselves had been cut by a third. Um, 
Um, on top of that, our youth were no longer getting outside. And there had been very little help and investment into our, our communities. The one area in our county where you see housing prices continuing to decline and, and average household income as well as declining. Um, and so suddenly there's this huge disaster you're on the precipice and your community comes together and has an amazing response to this disaster of bonding together and saving lives and trying to create a path forward through the muck to have that economic uh, bridge between us and the outside world back connected up the road because so many people now commute. Um, but if we look again to the past and look to the future, how do we get out of this muck beyond and address other issues that we're struggling with in this community? The youth not getting outdoors. Uh, about 1 in 25 youth under the age of 30 uh, dying due to substance abuse, drug abuse, overdoses, drunk driving, suicide, all sorts of stress on them. And how do we as a rural community turn a new leaf and go forward, embracing our path to the outdoors? Because of so many of us in the older generations have a centeredness and uh, identity focused on whether it be logging or hunting or fishing or just walking in the outdoors. And we're at risk of losing that with the next generation. So I came back to my community that I grew up in, Darrington. Um, I was rafting at the time of the slide and on the Grand Canyon, and I found out about it three weeks later when I got off. And I didn't think there was anything to do. There was the apathy. You see these struggles of these rural communities time and time again without help or opportunity or a path forward. Um, and so I came back home to help out with it and started volunteering in the community with different groups that were put together to respond. Um, and I started working with this group um, put together by Senator Murray and Congresswoman Del Bene that included REI, included uh, the Wilderness Society, and Outdoor Research, and Access Fund, and Washington Trails Association, a lot of amazing groups that were interested in helping boost our recreation infrastructure in our community. Um, and as a raft guide, and as a person who loves to recreate outdoors and do these things, you know, it's great to boost our recreation and do these in tourism, but our own youth don't have the capacity, they don't have the gear, they don't have someone to teach them to get outdoors and do these activities. How do you plant that seed and get these kids started doing it and have it be a piece of our culture, not just for people that can afford it from outside the community and come up and do it and then leave, but for the kids in our own community. Um, and oftentimes I'd have this conversation and then somebody would hand me a name and an email address or a phone number and then I'd call and talk to them and meet somebody and then they'd pass along another information piece. And I realized that for something to be sustainable in our community and to exist in our community, it really had to come from the community. We couldn't bring in an outside nonprofit organization. We had to do it ourselves. We had to start it here. Um, and so we created this network. We brought in the school district. We brought in uh, Washington State University Extension. We brought in North County Family Services, a local nonprofit providing uh, social well-being services in the community. And asked how can we create something going forward. And luckily, or I don't, I don't think it's luckily, tragically, it had to come about as a result of a natural disaster for people to have the interest to help us save lives in our community. Because I know way more people that died in due to substance abuse, due to other causes, than I know that died in this life. But it's when you have this sudden disaster that 
opens people's eyes that they want to help this area, that they think they're helping this immediate cause of struggle, when really they're helping this other cause that we can now talk about because their ears and their hearts are open about these other struggles we're facing in these rural communities. Um, and so going forward, I analyzed from the Canadian border to the California border, trying to find a sustainable model. What is going to be successful for our rural communities? And I was specifically looking at timber communities like Darrington or Packwood or Concrete. Uh, they're more than 30 miles off of the freeway. And trying to find which one of these has made it. What I saw was the same statistics of struggle, of lowest incomes, declining incomes, household incomes in their communities, cut schools, and lack of outside help. And, you know, that was really eye-opening when I, I went through and I was trying to find a solution. What you hear so often is that people say recreation, tourism is the future of these rural communities. And I could not find a place where it was with these timber communities, this silver bullet of a solution for them. What I found instead was that People, you know, you look at the mountain bike trails. We now have mountain bike trails in Darrington that I advocated for. Um, and the people, they buy, the mountain biker, they buy their gear near their home in Seattle or Bellingham or wherever along the I-5 corridor. That bike is designed in Seattle. That, you know, the food that they buy before they leave is oftentimes in Seattle. Um, they drive up here, they ride up, and then they go back. A lot of times the guide companies are in Seattle. Um, and so how much of that is being captured, that money is actually being captured in these rural communities? Not very much. So, hey, I, I got a question for you there. Economics, absolutely. Go ahead. So um, have you looked into some of the uh, other Western states for as far as um, how they do it with uh, hunting and fishing um, influx from out-of-state and out-of-area um, income? As far as the uh, the community income, because that that oh, yeah. might give you, you a really that's, good idea. That's a piece. That's a great point. You know, and I, I'm a hunter myself and fisher as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you go somewhere, and a lot of times you camp, but you're going more than an hour. You're going somewhere away, or you rent a hotel. You know, you're going farther enough away where you have to stay and spend money in that community. Right. Uh, when you're close enough to drive in a day, you know, so often you're driving there and back. And when you're also going in places, you know, there's is an influx in these of this money coming in with hunting, but it's not, <clears throat> I would make the argument that it's not replacing the resource-based jobs that are there. Is it diversifying the economy? Absolutely. Is it benefiting it? Absolutely. But is it replacing that family wage income? Right. Are these service jobs created replacing that family wage income that's there in that community? And, no. and, and not, not to pigeonhole one particular person or place or organization, but would you say that this uh, so I'm from Lewis County, right? So Packwood is very familiar to me, and and that's and Randall and that situation. Um, yeah. So would you say that maybe the the shutting down of the Forest Service uh, in '96 what was part of the big problem with Darrington, just like it was in Packwood and Randall, as far as that was the major economy that supplied the mills, that supplied the logging, that supplied the wood, and then when they shut that down, that that it's it's we're still seeing a vacuum from that uh, that happening. Yes, I, I would say that's a piece of it, and it's a piece mm -hmm. of it. If you look at rural America across America and resource-based jobs, for the most part, the money and the share and the full wage jobs in those is decreasing. 
Okay. So it's it's a piece of it, but it's it's an overall struggle of our rural economies and communities where it, it, there's not as many jobs as there used to be, and they may be harvesting more resources than ever in these rural communities. So would you? But would, so many of those jobs are now the mills are more efficient, which is great, right? Yeah. And the logging equipment, the filler bunchers are more efficient as well. And so a lot of times there's not the need for the same number of jobs. Sure. Now, so would, you, would you say that's just... I'm not on one side or the other. We have to understand the whole, like, the whole realistic picture. Sure. I, I'm just thinking, so you're kind of yeah. saying it's just, basically it's big ag um, has come in. And, and so realistically, the small-time guy, whether he's a small-time jippo logger or small-time dirt farmer or whatever, a pig farmer... The, the small town, rural farms, uh, crops, however you want to look at ranches, can't sustain themselves like they used to, say, 40 years ago. Is that kind of what yeah, you're getting at? I would at? say that is, it's much more the realistic picture there. Mm-hmm. Is that they can't sustain themselves like they could 40 years ago. There's so much more efficiency yeah. you know, in all these other places. And also there's subsidies that those big industries can compete in and grants and tax brackets and all sorts of things that it's much harder for the smaller ones to compete in. And they can lobby for buyouts from the government, you know, that the smaller guys can't as well. So there's there's all sorts of different abilities that they have, and it's really hard to compete in. And you want to look at a lot of the, the rural economies that do well in communities. You know, we were doing really well when we had a diverse batch of small businesses. Uh, and so... <laughs> I can go down this route for a while without talking about it. You know, you look at Packwood. It's, I love Packwood. And I love Randall down there. Um, but you also have, you know, like you look at Packwood and you have this tourist industry bounding and doing great there. Um, but you also have people struggling to find a house because of so many houses are now on VRBO and owned by, is that VRBO money staying in the community? No, usually... No. That money is owned by somebody in Olympia or Tacoma, you know, and so big tech. who actually is owning the infrastructure? Who's actually benefiting from this rural economy and community of tourism? Right, right. No, I, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead and go down that rabbit hole, man. Like, I'm not, I'm not usually a political, uh, a political guy, uh, or try not to make this. A, I am a political guy, but I'm not a, trying to make this a political podcast. But I think you have some great points, and I really want you to get those out and let the, the masses hear it. So, well, when I say masses, I mean 16 people that actually listen to this thing. But uh, well, that's that's awesome. I can talk to 16 people, and then you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt because it's. From my perspective and coming from a rural community, and we've been told these solutions. You know, on one side, I do support having the logging here because I, lo- I love loggers and I love <laughs> my neighbors, and I like those people that are working outdoors, you know, right. uh, on the industry. And on the same side, I love recreation. I'm a raft guy. I come from a logging family and come from a rafting outdoor recreating family as well. Um, but oftentimes we said it's, you know, black or white. It's one or the other, and they're at heads. But a lot of times the people saying, you know, the black and the white are it's recreation or conservation groups in cities, and then it's oftentimes industry speakers as well in cities telling us, you know, what our future is that way. Um, and so what is, how do we as rural communities look going forward and create our own narrative and our own future where it's like recreation can be a great thing, um, as can logging. We all use resources. We all need wood. We all need food. You know, how do we sustainably manage that? forest 
and reciprocate that relationship where it's not just managing. It's about how do we enhance the forest for future generations to also have these jobs here. Uh, and that's that's what we're trying to do with Glacier Begins. You know, we create, I present this whole bubble balloon, um, but how do we empower youth to see everything going on here in these communities and be a piece of it and have opportunities for responsibility? Um, over the last 30 years or 20 years, not even 30 years, over the last 20 years, outdoor activity and youth has dropped across the U.S. by 50%. 50% last time outdoors, you think about 2,000 and how much the last time we were spending outdoors back then as well. Um, it's that damn Xbox. It's, it's huge. Yeah. And in <laughs> some studies, they're finding that it's dropped more in, in these rural communities. And a lot of people think that rural kids get out all the time. And from my work that I've seen in Darrington and Concrete and other places, that's not the case. There's a lot of kids that don't get outside at all. Um, a huge population that do not. And what we find is, you know, we come back to this trying to figure out a way forward for our community and creating GPIs was that we noticed that those kids that get outdoors that come from at-risk backgrounds that don't have the perfect life or there's no struggles at home, those that get outdoors, we noticed, were much more resilient. Um, and that's what studies are showing, that kids from rural communities that come from at-risk backgrounds, the more at-risk and harder their struggle, and the more time they get outdoors, the more likely they are to succeed, which is huge because we have an abundance of the outdoors here. We may not have these technology programs that are down in Everett and Seattle that are amazing and great to have down there, but we have the outdoors, and that's something that we can leverage and we should be aware of, of how do we turn that into an interactive classroom to build resilience and opportunities for our youth. Absolutely, man. I am 100% on that. Uh, so I guess before we really dive into the Institute itself, um, yes. is, there, is there a way that people could join or is there a way that they could start this same similar program in their own community um or is there or is the institute just isolated to where you're at uh, for now we're isolated to where we're at mm -hmm. but that's my end goal is to figure out a process here or a way that other rural communities can start the same thing it's, it's how do you start a solution um, and I, I think that other people could start on and I'm happy, like they may want and interested in starting their own in their own community. I'm happy to talk about it and how to do it. Um, but our goal is to create, how do you create a peace, uh, economic and uh, financially sustainable and educationally sustainable foundation for this to get started in other communities? Um, and that's, that's a big interest, right? You know, we can do it for our community, but how do we do it for these others as well? And that's, that's a hard piece. Because if you look at it, well, let's look at the slide. We'll come back to the slide. And this is just indicative of, I think, our society as a whole or natural disasters as a whole. You know, there's suddenly a big slide, big disaster. How do you recover from that? Well, let's go ahead and put in, you know, mountain bike trails or other trails. All right, the states are doing that. You know, the federal government's helping. Who do they know? Do they know people in this poor rural community? No, the connections are going to be other people in cities. Pretty much all the nonprofits that work with advocacy, recreation, natural uh, lands management are all in Seattle. So the model is usually let's pay another business in Seattle to come up and put in the infrastructure and then go back to Seattle. Hey, oh, can I you know, stop we, you there for a second? To, go ahead. Uh, so, I, so I have some listeners that are, are actually either out of country or out of uh, state. 
mm. which they're very few. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure that maybe they know what, when we talk about the slide, <laughs> the Oso slide, what exactly we're yeah. talking about. So if you could kind of elaborate yeah. on exactly, like, what it was, when it happened, oh, yeah. what devastation yeah. happened, and then I think it might kind of gel everything together for them a little better. Yeah, my, my bad. No, that's um, all right. It's all right. So that's what I'm here the for. slide was the Oso slide, or the mud slide, that occurred in 2014. Uh, it suddenly gave way and traveled about a mile, I think, in less than a minute across the valley. 600 feet, uh, 700 feet of mud and sludge just went across and wiped out. I think it was... I forget how many structures, but it killed 43 people, 20 or 40 or 80 structures. I can't remember. It blocked the main highway in and out of town. And so, and basically, what that was, it was it was a high wall cliff on the outside of a meander bend of a river, and basically yeah. the tow got eaten away by the river. That whole wall, a couple hundred feet high, came off the off the side of the mountain, washed through the river, and took out the basically the houses that were living in a floodplain or, or kind of a gravel bar, I guess, if you would, uh, on the other side of the river in a big flat, and it just it destroyed everything in its path. It was basically a freight train, right? Is that, am I correct on yeah, that? It was, uh, yeah, it was a freight train or a hurricane, and people that survived it described it, and it just came, and I, I don't even know how thick it was. It was you know, where the highway used to be, um, was probably 20 feet under mud or something like that. Right. You know, so you just have mud, and that was probably three-quarters of a mile away from the 600, 700-foot cliff that came down. And so when it hit that water, the thought is that lubricated it. It just created this path for it to travel, basically, uh, across, like you're dropping, I don't know if you've ever dropped snow on top of a hot fireplace and watched it dance across it. Uh, but kind of like that, it just came across. I have, but I watch I watch a lot of mudslides, too. <laughs> I, I have the uh, the unique ability to uh, to deal with landslides on a daily basis as part of my job. So I oh, I yeah. totally get where you're where you're coming from. Um, but yeah, you're making yeah. A, a great point. Just just so you know, um, I like I like yeah. I like your uh, analogy. Mm-hmm. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So it's, it was awful. I don't remember where I was at. <laughs> that was the slide. Oh, we were talking about response. Um, you know, it was an awful tragedy uh, to occur. And we look at the response where there's, you know, millions of dollars coming in and pouring into this area. Um, but how do you have investment into this rural community? You know, the infrastructure was being built by um, nonprofits in Seattle, which is great. They're amazing nonprofits. I love them. But you don't capture that same amount of money and infrastructure and employment in your rural communities. Um, and too often that's the case with these uh, rural communities where the trails are at, you know, if, if somebody's going to get a contract to build a trail or do something, they're not from the rural community. They're oftentimes from a city. Um, they're looking at guiding as well. There's not a single guide company in our rural community where we have a wild and scenic river flowing through it and people rafting it all the time. Um, you know, or the mountain bike trails or the hiking or the mountain climbing. You know, all these guides come from elsewhere. So how do we start to instead see opportunity in that for our youth and build a possible future for that. Um, with the school as well, you know, the school after the slide came forth and the teachers came forth and they're saying, you know, we're noticing that our kids during kindergarten are no longer comfortable getting outdoors. 
they're not safe, they're unsure, um, they, they feel scared out there, and they don't have the experience that Darrington youth used to have uh, with the comfort and ease in the outdoors. Um, so that's one of the ways that we began working with the schools was recognizing that the teachers and the youth needed help understanding how to utilize the outdoors, nature, the forest that is literally part of the school and right next to it as a classroom and a place to learn. And it's, you know, it's too often teachers and youth, how they interact with and have seen the outdoors these days, it's just through television and media for the most part, where if you're on television, some monster is going to jump out of a tree or some boogeyman or something along those lines, you know, or gorillas eating uh, a lion. I don't know. Um, and yeah. so how do you peel back that trauma and, you know, and get kids and teachers comfortable utilizing the outdoors as a safe and wonderful, engaging learning experience space? Um, and also understand the risk because the outdoors is not 100% safe and neither is the indoors. But, you know, there is snags and there is berries and other things that they need to be aware of as well. Yeah, for sure. So so I, I like I like the the concept of the institute. I like I like where you guys kind of um, I guess you could almost say you came up out of the uh, from the landslide. You know, you were you were a um, effect, I guess, uh, of that. But uh, let's let's talk about exactly what the institute does. So we know we can know kind of why you guys started and and what you, your guys' kind of mission statement is, but. What exactly do you guys do on a day-to-day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so our, our mission is empowering youth through action-based education to build uh, resilient rural communities and ecosystems encompassing the Glacier Peak region. And what we do on a daily basis, I think it's pretty varied, but we have different realms and areas that we do handle. One is we develop education programs support for our schools. Uh, we develop what's called STREAMS, science. You take STEM, which is a common acronym these days in education, sure. uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And we focus on recreation um, and the arts and build skill building within the youth. Um, the outdoors is a great place. You know, think about growing up rural. Um, you have oftentimes you know, where I grew up, I had a limited amount of resources and money to solve a problem, whether it was fixing a tractor, uh, you know, or out working with chickens or doing cows or whatever have you that way. Uh, you gain confidence through working with those animals in those spaces. And you do the same through the outdoors where you have responsibility and opportunities to be outside and have independence and interact with plants or grow uh uh, build a trail at the school, or go out and we have kids uh, studying salmon and seeing what's happening with the salmon runs. Um, and not only are they just seeing the salmon runs and talking to experts, they're throwing out dead fish. We're talking about uh, energy, because the fish is a source of energy coming up from the ocean or nutrients. And then they see this whole process of these fish coming up, giving energy to trees, double in growth and heavy salmon streams next to them bears thrive, but then we also look that our salmon runs currently on our, our areas are around 7% of what they were prehistorically. So how do you solve that problem? And so we empower the youth to generate their own problem solves, like how do we get salmon back and create these solutions and what we call prototyping and test them out and see how their solutions do work in reality. 
Um, and that's, that's more at the middle school level, but it's, it's a full-on investment in our youth to understand, be out in, experience, and be empowered to solve these issues that we face. And that's our streams programming in the schools. So I have, I have we one... We run hundreds of those per year. Yeah. I have one question for you. So when I, yeah. when I listen to you talk, um, mm-hmm. being that I'm a, my, uh, my day job is, is a government employee... Um, I get a yeah. lot of cross trainings and a lot of trainings and well, even over the years, even in, at, when I was in private industry, uh, I, I went to a lot of seminars, le- heard a lot of, uh, different, uh, talks and I'll, it's, it's really eerie to me how similar what you're saying, uh, lines up with the same thing the native American tribes are saying. I mean, it's, not not to be a pun, but it's like beating the same drum. Um, yeah. Is is there is there a correlation there? Have have you looked into uh, into the Native American uh, stuff? Have you have you talked to any tribes? Uh, have have you have you done any of that with with your institute? Um, we have. We partner with the uh, Sox throughout all the local tribe here, the Stiligwamish tribes in the Darrington area. And uh, and work with them a little bit, but tribes are very diverse in their mm-hmm. their uh, approaches to landscape management and across the United States and culturally. Um, it's really about if we look at us as a rural community. That is our, our should be for rural communities landscape philosophies and managing for future generations and care. And does it have similarities to Native American philosophies of land management? probably for some of these tribes um, as well, absolutely. Um, and I'm not familiar with all tribes, so I can't say for all tribes that way. But uh, it's how do we have a sustainable and thriving community in these rural places? How do we respect the resources and harvest it, um, but also make sure it's there for future generations? And that, that's the perspective we have, and definitely a lot of tribes have that philosophy as well. Yeah. Um, and we do work with well, and I just, I mean, it's its not, to me, it's not only that. It's just like even when you're talking about, you know, the youth and the troubled youth and, and issues and getting them out, you know, um, where you're trying to uh, kind of teach them the, the stem of the forest, in, in a sense, uh, or the stream, as you guys call it, uh, the, the Native Americans are kind of doing the same thing, but they're doing it more, you know, with historic... Uh, stuff and kind of their um, their cultural heritage, but it, it 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 lines up really really well from what you're doing. It's just it's just it's different, but it's the same. Anyways, it just when you when you talk about this, that's the first thing that goes to my mind is the Native American communities and the same kind of guidelines that they're trying to put back in their youth. Yeah, no, and I think there's a lot of similarities, and there's a lot of similarities with people that have connections on the land. Yeah. A sense of history and relationship to the landscape, right? How do you have appreciation giving? And you'll find a lot of loggers. Uh, Rural folks have the same, when you start talking to them, you know, and you're out in the woods and doing things, they have the same ethic. Absolutely. Of caring for the landscape and caring for these futures. Um, And it is for those of us on landscapes and working on them, uh, out in the trees and the trips and the water or sunny hot days, you know, <laughs> it's, there is a care. You see animals, you see places, and there's a sense of being and place and belonging. Um, and that's, that is what we're trying, we're, we're losing that 
sense of belonging in our rural communities as we get more and more focused on technology or less jobs here outdoors. And how do we bring that back and have these kids have the sense of confidence to this place in the center of belonging and identity uh, that we can really empower them to achieve? So I think the Native populations that are going for that are right on for that. And you see that within uh, research and studies demonstrating resilience outdoors and community and social interactions. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, let's get back to the Institute now that I've, I've got you off topic, yeah. but, um, <laughs> no problems. It just, it was, it was baffling to me. Like I'm listening to you speak and I'm like, man, I've heard this a hundred times. Where have I heard? It? Oh, that's right. I've heard it in the native American community. It's the same, it's the same <laughs> stuff. But anyways, keep going. This is, this is good stuff, man. I, I'm, I'm glad we're talking today. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm enjoying it too. And, you're adding up perspectives and things I haven't thought about, so I, I enjoy this conversation. Where were we at? Oh, we were talking about different programs we run, and so that's sure. we run hundreds of these STEM programs, dreams programs in schools, um, and we also, as a piece of in the past, not with COVID this last year, but we also interested with the institute and in how do we build these urban rural bridges. So often we're we're portrayed as opposites, right? As that we shouldn't get along, especially in the political climate of today. Mm-hmm. And really, there's a lot of commonalities. The problem is, again, through media, as so I was talking about the outdoors earlier, through perceptions of the outdoors and it coming through social media and TV is all this drama. Oftentimes, those groups, minority groups, um, whether it be rural, whether it be inner city, are oftentimes their only interaction between each other is through television. And there's oftentimes a lot of fear. Um, so we work with a group, uh, not a group, a school district, like Washington School District, Tesla, STEM School, um, and have them bring their youth up to Darrington. They're in Redmond, Washington, which is basically where Microsoft and Nintendo is based out of, and they're a select school of the public schools there. Um, so they have basically the opposite of poverty that we have and special needs, a lot more opportunity. But they don't have the outdoors. So with their kids come up, they do computer coding with our kids and 3D printing, and our kids share the outdoors with them. So it's another piece is how do we build these urban-rural bridges and realize our commonality as well. Um, and it's a piece of our streams programming. You know, you know what I, I've done? I've, I've preached this several times, and there again, I'm going to get you off topic for a second, but I think it's important. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I've, so I'm a pretty conservative-minded person. I work with a lot of very liberal-minded people. Uh, but you yeah. know, when, when the rubber hits the road, man, when you really break those conversations down, what I've found is there's about a 10% rule. There's about 10% we really disagree on 90%. Yeah. We're all on the same page and that, that bridge, we think the media makes it look like this bridge is this huge thing. And realistically, it's a mm-hmm. tiny little thing, Creek that we could all step over. It really is. Go ahead. No, no worries. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you explaining pieces. And there's, you know, how do we realize our humanity and achieve pieces and empower each other to be uh, successful and understand our, our own backgrounds and not this, you know, evil perception that comes through media. Uh, other programs we run is we run recreation programs um, and where we teach kids how to go out in the woods and forage. Uh, so we're teaching how to identify mushrooms trails or oyster mushrooms, uh, whether it's how to eat different berries and 
plants that you can go out and forage in the woods themselves. A lot of kids come through the programs at the school hungry, so we bring food with us, but just empowering them to see the outdoors as a place where they can go and, and gather food in the spring and summertime to eat and thrive is, is, a, is part of us, is a part of our institute, really, like how do we empower these kids to succeed. Um, we're also teaching them mountain biking, so we get mountain bikes donated, um, and we teach them how to fix up the mountain bikes and ride the trails and then care for the trails as well. Because um, these kids can't afford, some can't afford mountain bikes, and some can't. Um, but those, without ever being introduced to mountain biking and realize that's something that they want to, you know, go mow lawns and save up money for a mountain bike, they're never going to know that without an introduction. So we service that introduction to them. So um, you basically give them. So you basically uh, are uh, giving them a to go rafting down the river. Yeah. Oh, sorry. This this is where it gets hard. Oh no, you go for it. <laughs> uh, so basically, what you're saying is is that they might not ha- ever have that drive to go get something like a mountain bike or 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 a piece of outdoor equipment and you're kind of showing them the way like hey come with us we're going to kind of show you why you think this is cool and why you want this and then that sparks maybe some interest and some drive for them to go get that is that kind of what you're saying absolutely it definitely sparks interest and drive we all need introductions to healthy activities, right? We need mentors. Mm-hmm. We are people that need introduction to community sports. Very few of us can just go out and pick up a, you know, go buy a several hundred dollar mountain bike just on a whim and know we're going to love it in advance. Something you're going to want to try and experience and realize beforehand. Or if it's hunting, you know, how many of us needed an adult mentor to get us started hunting and teach us the ropes, how to track how to load our own shells if we do our own shells, sight in our guns, and how to breathe right when you're pulling the trigger. It's similar with mountain biking. It's similar with rafting. It's similar with all of these activities that we're doing with you. Someone has to be there and mentor a lot of times to introduce them and get them started. Yeah. If it we're playing poker, it's increasing the likelihood that they'll get started on the sport, right? We're increasing their odds. Sure. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes... I mean, from where I come from and what I do uh, with youth, that makes all the sense in the world. Um, that I mean, you're 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 preaching to the choir in a sense, but yeah, that that is how it's done, man. That you got to get them, you got to create that spark. Yeah, that spark, and then you fan the spark, and you <laughs> you try and really help them out and develop that in themselves as a part of their their identity. If they can have that love for it, you know. And it's, it's a piece of something that enhances their life and experience. So, uh, so it's, it's a wonderful thing to get started. So what's the difference? I mean, I, I don't want to pigeonhole you guys, but what exactly oh, is the difference between, like, let's say the Institute versus, say, Boy Scouts? Institute versus Boy Scouts. It's a good question. Uh, I'm not fully familiar with Boy Scouts and everything there. We are focused on one place and living in that place. And we also offer career and jobs for kids as well. Okay. Um, so I consider Boy Scouts as more after school. We're in schools. We're, we're in the whole community trying to empower youth. So we're in the school. We're after school programs. We're developing uh, workforce opportunities for kids. It's the third thing that we do. And so we hire five kids in the summertime um, to go out and build trails, do forestry, and and work out there as well. So it's a, it's a full-on piece within the community. It's when you, not 
it's not something that's separate from, but it's it's looking at the whole community and health and how do we invest in all of it. When you when you're saying kids, what what age range are you talking about as far as employment and whatnot? Uh, fifteen to eighteen. Okay, okay, and then how? Oh, that's not good. Sorry, my alarm's going off. <laughs> There you go. No, that's all right. That's going to be interesting. Um, that'll, that'll wake people up that are listening to this. But uh, anyways, I, I guess where I was going with this is, um, so you have several steps. You, It's not only just an after-school program. It's also in school, as in, like, there's there's a class, like, or, or a, a, a time set aside during school time that, that these kids are going to engage in this? Yeah, we work directly with teachers, and so they have set classes uh, that go out weekly or bi-weekly uh, or monthly exploring the local forests and rivers. And so we, that way all youth can participate and are empowered to do it, and the teachers as well are empowered to use the outdoors um, as a tool for growth, both in education, meeting next generation science standards or Washington State education standards, as well as for the resilience and grit of the kids. Um, and so we, we are in the school itself, helping out, empowering the teachers as well to use the outdoors. And, and how many employees does the Institute have right now? Well, currently it is five, I would say, but I'm the only employee, and I just recently went from half-time to full-time, but I was volunteering the other half of my time uh, just to make things work out. Um, and the five others or four others are AmeriCorps members. So they're part-time annual employees that we get through uh, Washington Service Corps, uh, which is an amazing program, um, as well as uh, VISTA, so AmeriCorps VISTA. It's their service-based positions in these uh, in these organizations um, where they're they're they come and they come to serve and help serve and they receive stipends. Is that like the is that like the WCC? What's that? Is that like the WCC? Yeah, it's like the WCC. Uh, okay. It's Washington Service Corps, uh, yeah. Washington Conservation Corps, all part of the similar branch at the state of Washington. Okay, yeah, because I I work with those guys on fires and stuff, and and these seem like they're all young kids and kind of really it, they seem like they they have a really good program. I guess is where where I was going with that. But cool. Okay, I I know who those kids are. So. This is just kind of yeah. So, are you the founder then of the um, of the Glacier Peak Institute, or are you just an employee? Huh. Uh, both. I'm one of the founders. I consider it founded by the community as a response to the slide. So I okay. came forth and stepped up and helped put it all together with other community members to create a new opportunity for our youth and community. Um, so, founder and executive director and employee. Nice. Okay, cool. So you're the guy I need to talk to then. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. So um, let's let's. We I feel like we got a really good basis of uh, kind of what you guys do and and kind of where your uh, tentacles reach to. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to yeah. get in more into uh, like the meat and potatoes of actually what you're teaching. I guess. To me, what I'm seeing on Instagram that gets me all excited, 
what exactly are you showing these kids? What are you what are you taking them out to do? What are you uh, exposing them to? Yeah. Um, so much. We <laughs> run programs in well, he's fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, not despite being in a rural community, you'll, you'll see not every kid has somebody to introduce them to fishing. And so we run programs where we teach the kids how to tie a hook, how to tie a line, how to thread it, you know, all the way through, how to find different feed, grubs, um, baits to have on that hook and how to fish. You know, we support the schools with developing fishing curriculum where you can have fishing in the schools now. And we have that in the school as well. And so it's, it's a piece where it's simple, right? You're taking a kid out and showing them how to fish. And they're going to catch the first fish of their lifetime, and it's going to be a whopping rainbow trout or a little cutthroat. But you are also instilling a healthy activity and a lifetime passion of exploring the outdoors. And not only that, you're showing them a new way to see the surface of the water. It's not just a pond. It's now also somewhere that they can go and catch a fish and think about how that fish lives in that pond and exists there. So you're opening up a whole new realm of existence in place and looking at the place that they live. Yeah. Other activities we're doing are mushroom foraging. And so we're taking kids out to pick chanterelles. And what you see is so many people come up to Darrington to pick mushrooms. So few of our community members know how to pick them. So by going out and teaching a kid how to identify a chanterelle and see that it grows on duff and not on dead logs and that it has a solid stem and not like a squishy, gooey stem, uh, that it has false gills that come down it, you know, and it smells like apricots and where to find it, you're empowering that kid to now interact with that conifer forest in a different way and see it differently and have take all the chanterelles uh, out there, but then also we've had kids pick them and then they use the money to go buy a dog, you know, after they sold the mushroom. Um, and so you're empowering that for some economic existence as well and capabilities, but to also have a relationship with the forest that they didn't before. Really, it comes to how do you empower kids to live in this environment and care for it and manage it for the future, and how do you have that awareness? Yeah, dude, that, that's that's a that's a strong message. I think there's there's thousands millions of adults that need to hear that message not just the kids but um i think everybody needs to hear that message yeah yeah no i i <laughs> agree you know, if we could really live on our landscapes and appreciate them and care for them and realize how they exist and have these passions opened up we have much healthier society sure yeah i have i it's awesome, man. I I really respect what you guys do. I've been trying. So, a little little history on me is I've I've been trying to for years. Um, I grew up in this same community. I've been in the same community for for forty years. Um, mm-hmm. I've I all my kids. Uh, I have an eighteen year old is my oldest, and my youngest is ten, and and I have a sixteen year old in the middle. And uh, I've coached these kids and their friends um, since, in every sport since they were all probably six years old. Uh, yeah. This community, I, I've, I've spent so much time in this community and, and dealing with this community's youth 
my wife actually happens to be a paraeducator for the local school. Um, we're really involved. We always got kids over here. I'm always taking them up uh, shooting or, or taking them fishing. I, like It seems like there's always 15 people at my kids at my house. And uh, I've been looking, personally, I've been looking for something like this or looking for a way to get uh, the local youth involved in something like this. So to me, personally, this is, this is a huge thing for me. Um, what you guys have done up there is, is a model that um, I've been looking for for a long time, and I think it's really special. And so I, I don't know if, if other people uh, are looking for something like that, but I've, I've been looking for a model that you guys have done for, gosh, at least 20 years. So yeah. I, I just want to say that what you guys have accomplished is really special, and um, I hope that other people listen to this and and start their own programs uh, similar. Is there is there anywhere that uh, that people can get a hold of you or could uh, access? Do you guys have a website or um, some contact information that they could get a hold of you if they want to uh, maybe start their own or get some ideas from your pick your brain? Yeah, you can check us out at uh, www.glacierpeakinstitute.org. Uh, we have an Instagram page. We have a Facebook page. We have email at info at glacierpeakinstitute.org. Uh, we also have a phone, 360-436-6445. Uh, you can call anytime to ask us. I know some of us are tech savvy and can be on computers, and some of us just need the old-fashioned phone or send us snail mail as well. Um, however you want to get a hold of us, we will attempt to contact and, and go back and reach out to you. But again, it's you know it's a lot to take on for a small organization. It's really hard in these rural communities, and we understand that. Um, for fundraising, for coordinating, for getting resources to make programs happen, and it is a struggle to get started on these pieces. And we are still trying to solve that piece well, of how do you have this sustained long term. So just a little idea. Um, I've been, well, if I've been a part of one, I've been a part of 20, um, different hunting conservation groups, whether it be Ducks Unlimited, Rough Grouse Society, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, yada, 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 um, yeah. down the list. And to me, it, I mean, obviously you guys are more hands-on in the schools and you're doing, um, more programs, but as far as funding goes and kind of the the concept of of the I don't want to call it a business model, but it, it is a business. It's it's non profit, but it is a business. Um, but Absolutely. the way you get a business model, yeah, right. So the way that those things run are are doesn't seem any different than the way you guys kind of do things. Um, and I bet if you guys were to get figure out some way to do a banquet and maybe an auction. Um, you probably could raise a lot of money that way and probably get these other communities to be able to, to mimic what you guys are doing and create a revenue. Yeah, no, that's, that is our hope to figure out. And you know, when I started GPI, I thought we would, um, it would be really successful at the banquets and the auctions. And we did do a couple, we've done some annually. Um, or we have an event in Seattle uh, 
each year besides this last year looking to raise funds. We make 50000 at that event, which is great and huge for moving us forward. But if you're looking at running a whole institute and nonprofit going forward, it's, it doesn't go as far as you think it would, right? I see three um, things you did wrong, that though. you quickly eat up that money. Yeah, three, three things you did wrong. One, you should have had it in Bellevue. Two, you should have guns there to, <laughs> to auction off. And three, you need yeah. lots of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did number three. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, we had the local brewery providing beer there, you know, promoting them and promoting Darrington, and it's 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 a learning piece where you go. Uh, and I, I I don't know what's wrong yet. It's a you have to get started, and you have to if you're doing this, you know, take a bunch of punches, and you're going to be make mistakes. I'm just somebody who saw a need in the community and supported the community with creating a solution, and I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, focus on creating a network. And at times, you know, it's a network and working in partners because that's a way that has been shown to build sustainability and resilience for nonprofits. Have, have, um, you, have you guys thought about? And, um, may, have you guys thought about maybe um, purchasing uh, a small tree farm uh, or plot of land that you guys could? maybe you know get donated to you or buy cheaply and then use that as a way to teach the kids and then also maybe use it as a working forest that you could actually take revenue off of yeah no i've, I've thought about that and that'd be something we may do in the future um and it's something i'd like i would like to do and pursue that way and generate more revenue and diversify it i think there's there's different ways that we can do it. We've looked at potentially holding some races. We're looking at, um, you know, our work programs and can we expand those and get more grants for youth to go out and work in the forest on forestry pieces. Uh, a key piece is looking at how do we replicate this too. And it's one of the things I like is trying to figure out how to do this on federal and state lands because of so many of our rural communities are surrounded by them. You know, and to get started, that's what we've been doing is focusing on how do we utilize our surrounding public lands to get these pieces started, and then you can have it done in these other rural communities if you sure. can figure that piece out. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one thing where it's both really nice to have your own piece. You look at a lot of these other amazing environmental education nonprofits. They oftentimes have their own properties, but they also got a lot of money from somebody usually to get that started. Um, yeah. And a lot of times that's, you know, we have volunteers in our rural communities. We have people that really care about it, their community, but we don't have the finances to get things started. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's it. I mean, realistically, to get you guys going to where you could sustain yourself, it's almost like you would need like 100 acres of land that somebody would donate. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody would just give a chunk to you or or – you know, a large sum of money that you could purchase a chunk. And that's that's how yeah. that would have to kind of work. But it, it's possible. 100 acres here, I'm guessing, you know, price has gone up, especially COVID, uh, would be $1.5 million, you know, somewhere in there. Yeah. Dollars. I, I'll, t- I'll, I'll give you a little secret. Pretty ridiculous. I'll give you a little secret. What's that? Wait two years. Okay. <laughs> Wait two years and uh, <laughs> the prices are going to drop again, and you'll be able to get it for a song. Yeah. So start saving now. You know, I've I've been waiting for that for you know six years or so <laughs> for that to drop and see, and it's 
it just keeps on, you know, prices just keep increasing amazingly. Man, I tell you, I, and not and not to, not to toot my own horn or anything, but about I don't know, two years ago, um, I had I had a huge part of my family just pass away, and and I ended up with it with an inheritance. Not not nothing great, but a meagle little inheritance. And uh, for whatever reason, I just I didn't want to invest it in the normal stuff. And I I went out and I snooped around and kind of poked and prodded the right people and got twenty acres for dirt cheap. And I bet you oh, yeah. since then it's tripled in value. And I haven't done anything to it other than screw around on it. But I haven't done anything to increase the value and. It's tripled in value. My my own home has tripled in value in the last two years, and it's like it's ridiculous right now what's going on. I guess the point I was trying to make is that eventually it's going to be like oh wait, and the bottom's going to fall out of stuff again, and so yeah, that's that's the time. So what I would be doing now if I was you is, is be doing all the fundraisers I could and saving as much money as possible and beg, borrow, and pleading to get as much as I can, and then, like, a couple years, mm -hmm. then you drop the hammer. Buy that piece of property. Yeah. that That's that's good advice yeah. for anybody out there, but especially for you guys. <laughs> I, I think that's good <laughs> advice. It's just, you know, we got to work on getting that money all collected and put together yeah. in place. So, so do you guys have any... Do you guys have any outside interest that you have brought in? You know, do you have any muscle money? Um, or any any good backers of any sort? Um, no, not really. You know, uh, the local mill uh, donates about 5000 a year to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, the local marijuana grower as well donates the same. Oh, that's uh, interesting. So those are our big donors. Uh, we had an anonymous donation of 30000 this year, which has been our biggest donation yet. And so that's, that's been our big fund. Um, and just pulling together enough of those and small funds and get some grants is how we've been able to, you know, kind of jerry-rig this machine we have going to invest in our community. Sounds like we need to do a telethon. <laughs> you know, a lot of the small donors, are we love them and they're great, and that's how we keep going and keep everything supported and moving along. No, it's grassroots, man. That's 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 how you start. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I, I feel you there. That's, that's what you got to do, but... Yeah, it's, it's it's it sounds like you guys are screaming for somebody to, that could really back you guys. I th I feel like if you guys could get the proper funding, this thing could be like wildfire and just spread like crazy. Yeah, I I think so as well. Especially you know figuring out that reciprocal piece of how do we empower the youth, and get it in there, and get this in schools, and all that. But then how do you create this in other communities and you know, we do get funding for that, supporting our programs and getting this going with having people employed in communities to do this. It would be a really great asset for all of these rural communities that are struggling trying to find a path forward and for their youth investment opportunities because the, the death rates, you know, it's, it's just it's two and a half, three times national average for our young people that don't have jobs or careers and are really struggling in these rural places and not getting outdoors. Yeah, no, oh, for sure, man, for sure. And if even if they can find jobs, they they can't sustain themselves uh, with the economy yep. the way it is, with the wages the way it is. I mean, yeah, forty years ago, one person could make enough to support an entire family. The way things are now, 
it just doesn't work. Um, I'm looking oh, yeah. at I'm looking at my own children and yeah, and I'm looking at my own children and how they're doing and uh, the struggles that they're going through and you know uh, it's crazy. I mean, even even 20 years ago when we were you know teens uh, or maybe maybe I was I don't know if you were but I definitely was and uh, it it was. It was it was a completely different world. Even then, you could, I mean, wages were half what they are now for, for minimum wage, but yet you could still buy gas, and, you know, gas is four times cheaper, and everything was four times cheaper, and you could actually move about and, and have some freedoms, and now it's like, my poor kids, uh, if they had to pay their own cell phone bills and their own insurance, they couldn't afford to drive you know, let alone sustain themselves in, in an apartment or whatever. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it, and it's... Go ahead. It's, we, they need more opportunities and people investing in them. Like, you know, you, we're, gonna, we're talking about investing money here. You know, I really believe investing in youth and opportunities for our communities, you'll get your payback there. Well, um, and if we don't, if we don't and, invest in our youth, then uh, we, we're, we failed as a country, we failed as a society. Yeah, I agree, and that's, you know, where you invest in your own communities and youth is where you get your payback at, and how do you do that? How do you empower people to succeed through giving them the resources? It's a, it's a really difficult, when you're looking at budgets of cities or federal budgets, you know, it's really difficult to allocate those funds that are needed for so many in our community, and there's so often there's not these small communities anywhere in the U.S., you know, on the small scale, there's they don't have lobbyists in Olympia or uh, D.C., you know, and so how how can they even make the laws or policies to benefit them? Right. Uh, it's really difficult. Yeah, I, I, man, wow, do I agree oh, with okay. you. You were talking about, you know, 20 years ago, too, but we go back, I remember my mom talking about her growing up 60s, 70s, and she used to save quarters for gallons of gas. Yeah. They weigh quarters and put them in pockets to go back. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast with yeah. trying to save money and, and deal with gas races and, you know, just increases in the cost of living. Yeah, well, I just, I, I think, I listened to my uncles and, and my, my dad and uh, where they grew up. And I mean, literally, where I live now, I am probably two miles away the crow flies from where they grew up in the same prairie, just the other side of it. Um, yeah, and they had 15 acres uh, horse ranch in the middle of nowhere. The only thing around them was a river and a tree farm, a Christmas tree farm. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they were in the middle of nowhere. And now uh, I live at the end of a cul-de-sac, and it is literally rooftop to rooftop all the way to where they grew up. And the stories of them, you know, almost are Huckleberry Finn and... Um, uh oh Tom Sawyer type Tom Sawyer yeah you know what i mean barefoot run along the river catching trapping hunting doing all those things just running wild boys um you know and that was 40 45 years ago in the, in the same area um and now it's like you know i mean my kids are able to do that, but only because we still have public lands that I can go take them to, not because they're doing it out of their backyard. Yeah. Yeah, and how do we have 
you know, how do we have that still in our rural communities with public lands? But also, you know, why can't we have these rural lands farms? Why can't we have people working on the landscape and owning the landscape as well? In these places, you know, biggest loss is due to development and people wanting to develop their lands and make money. And you can divide your property up into, if you have a farm, you know, you're barely making ends meet anymore if you're lucky to make ends meet, right? Right. But if you develop your property and sell it off, you know, suddenly you're a multimillionaire. Um, and so how do we sustain people near cities in urban areas of the Puget Sound region? How do we sustain our rural areas with living rural jobs? It's a big question looking at the future where we go so that we have that infrastructure. We have those farms near the cities. We're not importing it from everywhere else. Um, and also having this diverse economy and community. It's, it's I, a I think huge Portland, question that I wonder about oftentimes. And it's like Alaska looks really appealing because we haven't. It's less likely to suddenly get developed up. Like Don't, don't get me started on Alaska. Cause, cause I'm, I got one, I got my wife and her whole family's from there, and I got one foot that up that way already. But uh, yeah, yeah. no, you know what I think is funny is I think that uh, have you ever seen the show Portlandia? Mm-hmm. I think they got it right, man. Like that's what we should be yeah. doing. The whole, the whole um, free range chicken farm thing, right? You seen that episode? Oh yeah. So. No, I haven't seen any episodes. <laughs> oh God, you you got, you got to watch that episode. I've heard of it. Yeah, so yeah. it's hilarious. I'm I'm not a big fan of the show myself, but it it, it makes so much sense, man. It, it, if we can get the masses in the urban areas, I mean, I feel like there's already a good stakehold there. But if we can get the masses in the urban areas to really buy into this organic, you know, free range animals and stuff. I think that's a saving grace for, for small community farms because they're going to be able to do it the right way, the way it used to be done. Um, and that's what, that's when people were healthy, not, you know, not all this pumping full of hormones and these big factory farms and on concrete. It was, it was a little guy that, that cared about the critters that he was raising and, and that he was bringing to market. And, if you can get that back into the idea of of the urban the urbanites that think that you know chicken is is something that comes in a cellophane wrapper and roosters is something that crow in the morning and hens lay eggs, uh, but the three aren't the same. When you can when you can change that mindset and you can get that away from factory farming, I think there's a huge there's a huge benefit for the rural community there. Yeah, it's, I I think so as well. Well, if you have the ownership, right, the resources and the smaller workers not up the high as much, where people actually living in the landscape or managing the chickens, mm-hmm. you know, they have more ownership over what they're doing and care for it. I think is a big piece as well. You look at how many farms are owned out of New York City. You know, it's across the United States. There's yeah. a lot of farmers in New York City but it's because that's where the corporations that own the farms are at. Right. Um, and so how do you care for a farm if you're living in New York City, a farm that's in Idaho or elsewhere? You know, How do you care about the policies? A lot of times you don't. You just care about the profits that it's generating for you. Yeah, for sure, man. That's, and that's, and that's, that's the disconnect, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's easy it's easy to to murder a cow and, and eat ground beef every day if, if you don't have to look it in the eye and and have to spend the last nine months with it. Um mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah, the, it, and that's a problem with America this these days. Not to go on a soapbox, but to me that's a problem with America is that we're so disconnected that we, we don't have any consequence. I mean, look at social media for example. You can say whatever you want and have no consequences at all. When I grew up, if I'd say something like that to somebody, I'd get socked in the mouth and lose a tooth. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it was true, man. Like you if you were gonna say something, you yeah. had to back it up. And and now we don't and and same with food, you know, everybody wants to be this, you know. Oh, you know, down on on farming and down on on hunting and fishing and 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 getting stuff yourself. But I think it's admirable that you're a person that can go out and do that yourself because at least you're connected to the animal, you know, spiritually if you believe in that, or at least physically you're you know you have the uh, the stones to uh, look that animal in the eye when you take his life and then you know celebrate his life instead of just you know pulling the cellophane off and, and throwing it on the grill. So, anyways, that's, that's just yeah, a no, soapbox in my I, own. And, I agree with that. I don't like killing, but I love hunting and fishing and being out there. Yeah, I, having well, that connection with landscape and awareness. Space. Right. Like, somebody told me the other day, we're all carbon-based life forms, right? So, whether you, you, you enjoy plants or you enjoy meat or you, you know, you're not in the war, you enjoy both, whatever... Um, it's all carbon. We're all carbon-based life forms, and that's just the way it works. So uh, yeah. I don't have any. I don't have any druthers either way. But I just think that it's crazy that people, you know, don't think they have blood on their hands when they absolutely do. They just are disconnected. The same with social media. Anyways, I think that's the whole problem: is that people are so far out there that they're not willing to. They're not willing to recognize the fact that they're just as guilty as as these rural communities that are doing it firsthand because they have to to survive. And you know, you I guess do you get where I'm going with this? I'm, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but does that am I making a point? You're rambling, but it, it, it makes sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, I do that a lot. Very, by the way. very. There's a disconnect between where things being nutrients or goods or our shelter come from, where we get these resources from, and the, you know, they come from living beings and creatures, and that things have to be killed for us to survive. And what you have from that, when you're aware of the connections on the landscape and space and the killing or the taking, uh, you have a gratefulness. And hopefully through that gratefulness, you care for that resource, you know, and don't see it just as a resource. You see it as a deer or a cow or a tree, and you hope to care for that so that other trees may survive and thrive and could be there for future generations. Yeah, that's, that's way better putting it than the way I put it, but I appreciate that. That's all right. some time to think while you're rambling. Oh, good. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's, that's kind of me. I'm kind of the, the shirt sleeve guy, right? Like, if I'm thinking it, I say it, and then I just kind of like make it up as I go, trying to get a point across. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Uh, you're making clear sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why podcasts have, have drawn me in so much because I can just BS my way through something and hopefully get a point across to somebody eventually. But yeah. 
we've already done over an hour, man. We have. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to cut us off here, and uh, we're we're definitely going to yeah. have to do a part two sometime. But uh, what is there anything you want to leave with? Um, anything you want to get out there to the to the people that uh, about the institute about yourself that you want to uh, get off your chest or or say or or give to people before you uh, close this thing down? <laughs> um. Sure, there is. They've already let me talk for quite a bit now. Uh, thank you for listening. And really, we're about empowering and building community through investing in youth to care for and be cared for by nature and surrounding forests. Awesome, man. That's good. That's that's a. I, I, did you did you practice that? Because it sounds like you practiced that. No, I just made it up right when I was talking about uh-huh. what I was. We're really about. That's solid, man. That's super solid. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to close this out here, dude. I really appreciate it, Oak. Um, this is a great podcast. I'm going to do a little editing at the beginning of this thing. Other than that, uh, it flowed smooth. And then um, we're going to be in contact because we're going to do another one of these. And I think me and you are going to have some time uh, communicating via email or whatever because there's a lot more questions and uh, and things I want to get from you. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do another podcast. I've enjoyed our conversations thoroughly. You may want to edit out the beeping of the alarm. Uh, <laughs> I think it's all great. It can't be any worse than my dog barking outside. So, um, yeah. Oh, that, that's just rural in itself. Right, right that's barking, just sort of... Alarm's going off. You it's know. it's organic, man. You just gotta let it roll. If you don't if you don't like it, listen <laughs> yeah. to a different podcast. <laughs> yep. So all right, man. Well you have a good holiday and uh I'm sure we'll be in contact soon. And like I said, I, I thank you so much for, for doing this and um I I'm I feel like we got a really good message out there. All right. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again here soon. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and all the other podcasts that I have recorded. If you have comments for me or maybe you have a suggestion about a new podcast or maybe something that you want me to research and find an expert that might explain it better to you, get a hold of me at weinke333 at gmail.com or you can also find me on Instagram at Mediocre Outdoors. If that doesn't work, you can always get me on Anchor anchor.fm leave me a message mediocre outdoors thanks i appreciate it and keep listening